you should pick the thing that you're most passionate about that has the biggest market that you can be a subject matter expert at. If you say, I like the NFL, I'm going to talk about the NFL. It's probably not that interesting, right? There's a million people talking about the NFL. Are you really going to be bigger than Pat McAfee, ESPN, you know, NFL Live, all these other shows? Maybe you're just that good. But to increase your rate of success or the chances that you have, let's find something a little bit more unique that you can talk about. Is it I love scouting. That's a better example because the market becomes smaller. You're now authoritative in that space. You're a subject matter expert. It's big enough still where it's still the NFL, but it's a smaller little degree. Thinking about it in that context, and that can apply to any sport, any topic, and really outside of sports too. I think the problem that most people do, and, and I've been a victim of this to some degree, is trying to do everything. Write a newsletter, trying to tweet 10 times a day, trying to record a podcast or two podcasts or three podcasts a week, release YouTube videos, trying to do shorts, trying to do Instagram posts, right? LinkedIn posts. So you'll kill yourself if you're trying to keep thinking about it. And I think the thing that people have to remind themselves of is the people that are doing that. These people have teams. You want to focus on quality first because you don't know, right? When I look back at a lot of my stuff, I'm like, why did I write that? Why did I tweet that? Why did I say that, et cetera? And over time, right, you get feedback. People tell you, hey, that was good, likes, retweets, whatever. It's all a feedback mechanism to tell you what is good and what you should focus on. And you were fine and you were fine and you were fine. You keep doing that six months, a year later, then you can start focusing on the quantity and you get better and better and the audience grows. And then eventually you'll get to the point where you can do both. Welcome to Media Empires, where we sit down with the most influential media creators right now to learn exactly how they built their empires. Our aim is to extract the secrets of top tier podcasters, newsletter authors, and media creators who are breaking the old rules for media success. Whether you're looking to start your own empires or simply curious about the nuts and bolts behind media businesses, you'll find valuable insights and tactics in each episode. Grab your headphones and let's dive in. This week on Media Empires, we have Joe Pompliano, an investor and entrepreneur who's one of the fastest growing personalities in sports. He's the founding partner at Pomp Investments, having invested in more than 100 early stage companies. His newsletter, Huddle Up, reaches more than 100,000 readers daily, and his podcast, The Joe Pomp Show, explores the life, career, business, and investments of high-profile athletes and executives. In this episode, he and I discuss the business of sports media, opportunities for entrepreneurs in the sports industry, the power of athletes in valuation growth, and much more. This episode is a masterclass in sports media. Without further ado, here's Joe. Joe, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for joining. Thanks for having me, Eric. I'm pumped to do this. So Joe, by, by way of introduction for people who are new to your work, how, how do you describe your moonshot? I, what is the mission and, and what are you hoping to, to accomplish and achieve with, with, with your work? I don't know, man. I feel like uh, <laughs> it's, it's helpful to have a one-liner or a mission statement or, or kind of an easy way to explain this. Uh, but I, I get asked all the time, you know, by people I meet or whoever, uh, what do you do for a living? And I never have a clear answer. <laughs> it's always something different. And I, I try to uh, make it a little bit better each time. But I'm fortunate to, I grew up in a family with four brothers, so five of us total. I love sports growing up. I, I played everything you could imagine, as did my brothers, watched sports. I joke that, you know, anyone who watched ESPN back in the day, like, during the summer, it would go from 6 or 7 a.m. until 2 p.m. And it was the same show just every hour over and over. I would yeah. just watch it all the way through, right? Like I just keep going and going and going. So I love sports growing up. I, I did some more traditional work in the finance world. I was at JP Morgan for a few years after school. And I just wanted to get back to that passion, right? Something I was interested in. So I started writing about it, tweeting about it, making content about it, et cetera. 
and I've been fortunate to turn that into a full-time job. So I do that full-time now along with, I probably spend about 50% of the time doing that. And then I, I do quite a bit of investing too in, in early stage startups. So maybe about 50% of the time I'm, I'm doing stuff for that too. Awesome. Yeah. I want to focus on kind of the business of sports and, and, and sports media, maybe to give listeners a sense, how, how would you kind of situate the type of content and analysis that you do within the broader kind of sports media ecosystem? Like people know ESPN, obviously they may know Bleacher Report, they may know The Athletic. Why don't you kind of give an outline of kind of the sports media business or industry? Yeah, I, I think I'm just a spoke in the wheel, right? Like those outlets cover a wide range of topics. Um, they obviously have more manpower, more resources, et cetera, to cover all of those things. My intent is very clear. It's the business and money behind sports. So you're not going to find any box scores. You're not going to find any analysis. You're not going to find any mock drafts. You're not going to find any of that stuff. It's strictly the things that I find interesting about the business of sports, right? So that could be media deals, that could be athlete investments. It, it feels small to some degree, but it's actually pretty wide open. It's literally anything that involves business and money in sports. And I think that's just one piece of it, right? ESPN used to have uh, a sports business reporter, Darren Robel. They, uh, when he moved on to a different company, they never filled the role. And there's a lot of other organizations that just didn't see it as a big enough market, I think. And, and I think what I've been able to do over the last few years is, is prove that there is a market for it. And it's global. It's people that, that watch sports all over the world. And I think that what we'll see over time, and we already see it to some degree, is that you know there's so many different pockets in sports you could talk about. And, and, and content creation online on different platforms has made that uh, more obvious than ever. And I think that the business of sports is just one of those things. Totally. If we were to look back, let's say at this century, the last 20, 22 years, and kind of maybe talk about the biggest inflection points in, in the business of sports, or kind of the, the biggest moments or biggest kind of, you know, pioneer, like if we were to do it around YouTube, YouTubers, we would say, you know, Mr. Beast, just like totally changed the game. Who, who are some athletes or sports entrepreneurs who kind of totally changed the game in terms of pioneering uh, a new way of doing business that many other people followed. How, how would you kind of characterize those waves or examples? So there's a few different ones. I think the most obvious one that sticks out to me is the modern day athlete. So if you think about athletes in general, the biggest athletes of all time, specifically in the United States, let's look at Michael Jordan. When Michael Jordan was in his prime, he was signing endorsement deals, right? He signed a $13 million deal with Gatorade. He had this deal with Nike. He had deals with all these other companies, right? Haynes, et cetera. And the standard back then, and, it, and it's still very relevant today, was to sign an endorsement deal and get a check, get cash. And I think over time, what we've seen is that has changed quite dramatically. There's athletes now, the biggest athletes are partnering with operators or entrepreneurs, funding the businesses themselves and trying to grow something that has, that has enterprise value. So LeBron James is a great example. LeBron James owns production companies. He, he invested in uh, fast food chains, right? He, he does all these different things, but he's not focused on giving, just receiving a check from you know, XYZ endorser anymore. It's how can I use my name, image, and likeness to really drive value to a product that I own either equity in or a meaningful portion of equity. So I think that's been a huge shift over the last... Well, I mean, that's probably been going on for five or 10 years now, but certainly today with the power of the internet and how popular some of these athletes are, I mean, LeBron James has, you know, hundred million followers, whatever it is, and is recognized all over the world. That's quite powerful. And I think that the athletes today realize that more than probably athletes of the past. Yeah. It's fascinating. I, I, I had a blog post that echoed a similar theme. It was called whoever creates the, whoever generates the demand will capture the value. Yep. 
And with entrepreneurs, for example, entrepreneurs are the ones who are creating value. VCs will invest, but still entrepreneurs will own most of the enterprise value inside the, most of the equity in the company. Whereas in music, you know, musicians are the ones generating the demand, but for some reason, record labels are the ones you know, taking most of the equity and maybe it's just musicians are not yet hip or, or not yet savvy to the kind of long-term enterprise value. But over time, as technology makes it easier for kind of the people who are creating the value and the people who are paying for it to connect with each other and do business with each other, the value chain will kind of reorient. Yeah, it's, it's funny. I was talking to someone who used to own a minority share in an NBA team, Ra rather large minority share, but minority share. And tech investor, you probably know who he is. And he was basically saying that he thinks that the biggest risk, we were talking about kind of the upside of the NBA. And my argument was that the NBA out of all the major sports leagues, I think has the highest amount of upside. And there, there's a variety of reasons I think that's really the case. I think the NBA does a tremendous job marketing their stars. It's a global game. They've built quite a business in China. They're doing the exact same thing in Africa and India. Uh, I just think that you know TV rights are going to grow, et cetera. Valuation should grow too. And his point was that the single biggest threat to valuation growth over the next 10 to 20 years is our players receiving equity or phantom equity to some degree, right? And his argument for that was exactly your point, right? The players are the ones providing all the value. If someone went to LeBron James or LeBron James came to an investment group and said, I need $20 billion or $30 billion to go start another version of the NBA, someone would give it to him. Someone would give it to him because they know that's how valuable he is and other athletes around, around the NBA too. So I, I think we're probably you know a few years away from that. The NBA is going to negotiate a new... Uh, CBA here coming up, and it probably won't get in this round, and then you have to wait another decade. But uh, ultimately, that's a real risk. And I think most people are realizing that now that the players more than ever before have this power that the leagues and the owners can't really compete with. Yeah. If most of the money is captured by the players, maybe they're not too sad, sad about it. But how do we compare, like, of all the money that's generated by the NBA, what percentage of that goes to the players? NBA and kind of affiliated, you know, businesses. Yeah, most of the leagues are pretty close to 50-50. So they negotiate the, their collective bargaining agreements, the NFL, the NBA, et cetera. And most of them are close to 50-50, give or take a few percentage points. The one that people get really riled up about is the UFC, because the UFC is obviously was a, a, acquired. It was previously a private company. Now it's acquired by Endeavor. But they pay out about, I think it's a little bit less than 20% of their revenue to their fighters. And I think that one sticks out like a sore thumb just because it's such a brutal sport. It's like yeah. much more obvious than the other ones that, hey, maybe these guys should get health care. Maybe they should get a bigger piece of the pie, you know, et cetera. But yeah, that, that's why you need a union. And I think it's at this point, it's very difficult to get a union if you don't have one because a lot of these people are living paycheck to paycheck, and it's difficult to get people to to stop accepting that paycheck. Yeah. I, I remember LeVar Ball made a, a storm. Well, he's made quite a few storms, but specifically about a few years ago about the um, sneaker competitor. Yeah. Him and, and his sons were going to create that. And yeah, of course, the next step would be a you know collaboration of stars saying, hey, you know, we can create a competitor to the NBA. LeVar Ball had a great idea. He just had terrible execution. <laughs> like it was the right idea, right? It was the right idea that you have these players, these athletes, his sons that have these massive audiences. You could create a huge business with that, right? I mean, ever, anyone yeah. that has ever invested or operated or, or been an entrepreneur in any degree knows that's really valuable. And he knew that too. He just, you know, didn't execute on it. He didn't have the right people in place. He didn't have good product, et cetera. I mean, they were shipping those shoes and not only were they super expensive, but 
you know, there was people getting two wrong sizes. It was just all over the place. I, I don't blame him for the idea and the attempt. I just think that maybe he should have hired probably a better operator of the business. I'm a basketball guy. I'm obsessed with the NBA. I, I don't know other sports as well. What, what do you think the NBA is uniquely good at or what can other leagues learn from the NBA? So the NBA, I think, has done a very good job of marketing their superstars. And they've, been, they, they've done that mostly through a digital first approach in the 21st century using those platforms. And the example I always like to use with this is Adam Silver. Adam Silver is the commissioner of the NBA now, of course. It was either like his first year or right before he became the commissioner when David Stern was still in charge. But YouTube had just started. Right. So I don't know, maybe what was that, 2006, somewhere around there. Right. YouTube had just started and all the NBA highlights were being posted on YouTube. People were posting them up there and, and whatever. Right. Highlights, game footage, mixtapes, whatever. And the lawyers, NBA lawyers came to Adam Silver and they said, hey, look, the NFL is suing them. The NHL is suing them. We should sue YouTube also. This is wrong. These are our media rights. We need to protect them. I mean, these are billions of dollars of media rights, right? It made sense on its face. And Adam Silver said, no, we're not going to do that. That is where the future of our audience is. If that's where they are, that's where we need to be. We're not going to sue them. Let them put the content up there, et cetera. We'll work out a deal kind of, kind of elsewhere. And I think you know, that's 15, 20 years now in the past, but I think it perfect, perfectly encapsulates kind of his stance on social media and marketing stars and so forth. And if you look what's happened over the last few decades, the NFL is king in the United States. They make more money than any sports organization in the world, but it's really not a global game. It's just here in the United States. There's not many people, they hold games in London, they hold games in Germany and they sell out, but people don't watch the games. It's more of like kind of an event once a year that people go to. It's not a global game whatsoever. The NBA is truly a global game. It's because they don't wear helmets. The stars are recognizable. If LeBron goes to India or Africa or China, he's recognizable. Tom Brady, Patrick Mahomes, not necessarily, right? It's just a different level of fame. And I think the NBA has done an incredible job at that. And then if you look at what they're doing on a global stage, they recently started a league in Africa. And I mean, China is the best example. China, they get a lot of shit for because of, of what Daryl Morey said and the games got taken off TV and so forth. China is a $5 billion business for the NBA that was non-existent basically like 15 to 20 years ago. So they built that from the ground up. It's worth $5 billion now to the owners. They obviously don't want to mess that up. That's why there was so much sensitivity around what Daryl was saying, right or wrong. And now they're going to go do the exact same thing in Africa and India, which obviously have huge populations as well. So I think the NBA, when you look at it from what they've done well from a digital standpoint, a global standpoint, and then it's the perfect storm because they have a new media rights deal coming up in the next couple of years here. And media rights should, most people are, are expecting them to triple to 75 uh, billion dollar deal, which would be, uh, if anyone has ever looked at the average valuation of an NBA team, it's a graph, right? Year over year. And it's pretty steady for most of the years. And then there's just one huge jump. And it was when they renegotiated the last media rights deal. So when those triple, that money obviously gets distributed down to the teams. Team valuation should increase dramatically again. The one risk to a lot of this stuff is the local rights, RSNs. Those businesses are not doing too well. And certainly, you know, there's a decent amount of teams that make a good amount of money on their local rights. The NBA might change that structure at some point, but I still think that there's a bunch of forces pushing their valuations higher in the league forward in general. One uh, thought experiment would be fun to brainstorm is if we were running a kind of sports tech VC fund or sports VC, just fund mm -hmm. and kind of investing in businesses that are in the sports, you know, 
world. You could try to invest in new leagues. You could try to invest in new media companies. You could try to invest in technology companies. W one question I've had is like, why isn't there a discord for sports or why a clubhouse for sports? I know there've been attempts, but yeah. that, that haven't broke out. Is it because the rights issue is so complicated or I'm curious your thoughts on that idea. And then also your just thoughts on the broader prompt of where is there opportunity for entrepreneurs? Yeah, I think there's certainly been attempts. It feels someone's got an idea similar to that every week. I think that the hardest part is just changing consumer habits, right? It's changing fan habits. And I think one of the, the craziest things to think about is that's Twitter, right? Like that's really yeah. Twitter. NBA Twitter is wild. You, you, I'm, I'm sure you know this, right? Yeah. Like when a game is going on, whether it's a Super Bowl or whether it's an NBA Finals game or the World Series or the World Cup Final, right? Like people are on Twitter talking about that stuff in real time. Obviously, you want a little bit of back and forth. Maybe you want some other things integrated in that and you can make the experience a little bit better. But it's just difficult to get people to change their behavior. You have to incentivize them in some way and, and so forth. And I think what we found is that a lot of the businesses that have that spun up over the last few years and tried to attack this is that it's just really difficult to get people to change their behavior, especially if you don't have that kind of that, that kind of market share already, right? If no one's on the platform, if no one's on the app, it's really difficult. So I think that's been one attempt at that and it's been difficult, but my guess is that it'll probably happen at some point where someone develops something that makes more sense. I'm trying to think about other opportunities. One of the most interesting things is that a lot of these leagues do have venture arms. They have, the NFL has something called 32 equity. I think it's called 32 equity. Yeah. Where a few years ago, basically all the NFL owners gave a million dollars and put it in this fund and we're like, basically go make VC investments. And look, when you're a league like this, you're, you, you can pick who you want to invest in, right? It's, you're seeing every deal you could imagine, but not only are you seeing the best of the best, you're seeing opportunities that you can invest in that help you and you can partner with and provide value with, right? So one of the best examples is Fanatics. I think Michael Rubin is probably one of the best entrepreneurs, bar none, like sports elsewhere, just he's incredible because he understands the power of partnership with these leagues, right? If you think about what he's done with Fanatics specifically, he has all the major leagues signed up as exclusive rights holders, exclusive merchandise providers. The NFL invested in them. I think a couple of the other leagues did too, the NBA and the MLB, right? So they own equity in the business. They're incentivized to keep them as the exclusive provider. As those leagues continue to grow, Fanatics grows, their equity grows, Ruben benefits too. Then he did the exact same thing uh, with the trading card business. So he literally... I guess 12 or 24 months ago, they didn't have a business. There was no trading card business. He spun one up overnight, went and bought a company that was already in existence, and then went and got the exclusive rights when they were up with all these other major leagues because he did the same thing. You'll get equity. The Players Association will get equity. We'll keep the rest of it. We'll build this business together and you'll get a meaningful share of this. So the leagues have kind of an unfair advantage when it comes to this because you're playing with house money to some degree. But I think that there's a lot of opportunities outside of that too for entrepreneurs to build businesses in other categories. Like... One of the things I think is most interesting is the fan experience, right? One of the examples that I sometimes give is, you watch Formula One at all or not? Not a ton, but I'm aware of it. Yeah, so Formula One, they the Formula One established this uh, view, this camera angle a few years ago. It's a helmet cam, right? So the driver has this small little like two gram view in his helmet and they don't really use it that much. It's one driver has it a race and it's really just for like social media afterwards and they don't let you view it during the race, et cetera. This year, they decided that every driver is going to wear it. And the, the camera view, you're going to be able to go into their streaming app and watch that person's view during qualifying and the race and so forth. What, what if that you add a, a VR component to that, right? What, what if you're actually in the cockpit of the Formula yeah. One car, right? So there's opportunities to do stuff like that, I think is interesting. The NBA app, actually, I don't know if you saw this, introduced something the other day where you can 
Adam Silver was showing it on stage. You can scan your body and then you can insert yourself as a player in NBA games in the app. So literally like you or I could go dunk on LeBron in a game and right. It's like kind of comical and like, what do you really need that for? But it just goes back to like these leagues, these teams and these businesses are now pushing the boundaries on kind of what's possible. And if this is already happening today, you and I both know kind of how some of this stuff accelerates. What's it going to look like in a decade from now? My guess is that it's much more significant and many more uh, use cases pop up. Totally. I mean, NBA Top Shot was an example, yeah. of, you know, of something that really took off and, and leveraged the league as well. You know, one thing we cover on this podcast is the rising opportunities for creators. You know, we saw Mr. Beast raise money, I think, at over a billion dollar valuation and Feastables, I think, is doing a hundred million dollars or something in its first couple of years. But, you know, the one question we ask is, what's the ceiling for these creators? Like if, if we were really optimizing Mr. Beast, how is Mr. Beast going to be worth tens of billions of dollars or his like entire empire? And same thing with someone like uh, Kylie Jenner, like she had that billion dollar company. If you were really optimizing, could you have a series of those? And I, I say that to offer uh, the question, which is, let's say that you were LeBron James business manager and you were in charge of, hey, we own the, everything related to LeBron. You know, LeBron's a billionaire already or whatever he is. How do we get LeBron, you know? a deck of, you know, worth 10 billion. Yeah. Or what is the ceiling for someone like LeBron? And if he was just optimizing on making money, let's just say, mm -hmm. how would you think about what are the opportunities that are unique to LeBron or what's the best way to compound value? So let me show you, let me tell you an example that is LeBron and it'll give you an idea of kind of some of the things that go on in the background. So about a decade ago, LeBron James sold his marketing rights to Fenway Sports Group. They owned a few different sports assets at the time. John Henry owns uh, the Boston Red Sox. They own a NASCAR team and they owned Liverpool at the time. And they wanted to diversify their business a little bit so it wasn't just sports teams. They wanted some agency representation and marketing rights and so forth. So they got LeBron James marketing rights. And in exchange for that, they gave him a six and a half million dollar stake, which was equivalent to a, it was either one or 2% in Liverpool at the time. And, you know, LeBron said, okay, no problem. In lieu of cash, I'll take the equity. So that equity over the last decade has increased. It's now worth about like 90 to hundred million dollars in value. That small percentage. So again, great turned out. Well, you could argue that he would have made a similar or equivalent amount kind of on, on marketing rights too. Who knows? My argument, though, is that what he did after that was even smarter. So last year, Fenway Sports Group raised $750 million from Redbird, and they sold about 10% of the business to do that. When they did that, LeBron converted his 2% yeah, his stake in Liverpool into a 1% stake in the parent company. So now he's a partner of Fenway Sports Group, which owns... Liverpool, the Red Sox, they own the Penguins, they own a bunch of different, you know, they own a NASCAR team, they own a bunch of real estate, they own Fenway Park, etc. And so now he's a minority owner in that and he's a partial owner of all those teams. But what they raised the money for was they eventually want to go buy an NBA team, an expansion team. They haven't made it explicitly clear that it's an expansion team, but they circled the wagons when the Timberwolves went up for sale. They've looked at a couple of the other teams too. And the rumor going around right now is, and LeBron's been pretty open about it, that they're just waiting for an expansion team and they're going to be first in line for Vegas. And the idea is that LeBron would have some level of involvement in that team, whether it's running the team, whether it's a higher equity ownership stake in the team, something, right? You obviously, if you have an asset like LeBron, you want him involved in some degree, then it's just kind of figuring out what it is. But I say that example because you, you look down the line now and you took something that was worth, we'll call it six and a half million dollars, 
but it was representation for LeBron. He could have hired someone else to do it. It wasn't really that huge of a deal to him. And now you're turning into possible NBA ownership of a brand new franchise that's worth hundreds of billions of dollars personally to you and billions of dollars overall, right? So those are the type of moves I think that they're getting better at. But ultimately, it's more of the same. You talk about Kylie Jenner. You talk about Mr. Beast. I don't know if you saw the Logan Paul and KSI with Prime. They did $250 million in sales. Like These can be massive businesses. You know, That's a billion-dollar company that they literally birthed overnight. So how many of those can you do? I think that's really the question. But I think most investors right now are looking at those opportunities and they're uh, salivating to some degree, right? If you have someone with that level of an audience and that level of um, uh, of uh, ownership, then I think that uh, as long as you find someone who's a good enough operator to put in place to kind of run the business day to day, you have a home run. And I think that a lot of athletes and, and uh, influencers are realizing that too. Speaking of owning a team, what's the minimum buy-in for, for a team? Do you know? I, I once heard someone say 25 million. I, I wasn't sure if that's accurate. And I'm curious if you think you know, there's a Krauss Dow, there's a Dow that's trying to own an NBA team. If you think something like that would, would ever come into fruition. No, I don't think a Dow is going <laughs> to own the team. I mean, look, I don't want to say never. Down the road yeah. at some point, certainly it might be possible. I think the way that the leagues are structured right now, one, it wouldn't be allowed. They would have to change the bylaws to make that possible. And then secondly, they want real people in there and they want individuals. They don't want... Yeah. They just opened the door now. They're going to allow private equity funds and sovereign wealth funds and endowments to buy minority stakes because what they want to do is these teams are getting so expensive where there's only so many people that can write big enough checks. And the problem to your point with minority ownership is I don't know what if there's like a specific amount. I think you can, I've been approached with smaller deals than that. So I don't think there's a specific rule around kind of what you're able to buy as a minimum. But the problem is you're not getting anything. Right. Like I know people that have paid a hundred million dollars to be a minority owner in an NBA team and they get pissed off because they don't get anything. They literally get some tickets to the game and that's it. You're not doing anything outside of that. Right. I, I think there's kind of this there's this inflection point happening where for the individual, it doesn't make as much sense to be a minority owner anymore. You're locking up a bunch of cash. You don't really get the the fun out of it that you may have gotten in the past when you can just turn to a private equity fund or an endowment or Saudi Arabia or someone like that, who's willing to pay a premium to the shares and they don't care about doing any of that stuff, right? It's just kind of a novelty item for them. It's great from an investment perspective. It locks up their capital for a long period of time. In some cases, they're able to charge management fees, right? It's a stable asset that has a high degree of certainty of where it's going to go. And I think those are the people that we're going to see get more involved in sports versus the individual. Yeah. I'm curious, how do people, it, it, let me start over. We've been talking about how the players make money. Let's talk about the other players in the ecosystem. And just more broadly, if you're trying to make a lot of money in sports, let's say NBA specifically, and I guess you don't have enough money to be an owner. How should we think about like, where are the opportunities to make money? As a player? As a non-player. As, as a non-player. Like you could be an agent, you could be a media entrepreneur, you could be a you know tech entrepreneur. Maybe let's focus first on like just agents. What is the business? Like you yourself, you're the business of sports. Yeah. You get to know players. Presumably some of them may be asking you, hey, do you want to be my agent? Is that a business that you'd ever get into? And how should we think about upside? I, uh, I wanted to be an agent when I first started. I thought that was the coolest thing in the world. I was like, Jerry Maguire is awesome. This is sick. We should, t I yeah. should totally do this. I actually went and interned at, when I was in, when I was in college, I interned at Octagon Sports Agency, which is 
uh, one of the largest sports agencies in the world. They represent uh, Steph Curry and a bunch of the other guys. And what I found was it's just an incredibly difficult business. It's, it's very difficult. Most of the athletes are literally represented by a handful of agents and their firms. So it's really difficult to even get the top guys. And to get into that space, we're even able to sign some of these guys at these major agencies. You're working for a decade, possibly even more to even get your foot in the door. Like literally you're an assistant for three, four, five years, then you're getting the mail, then you're doing this and that. And uh, it's just a really difficult business. So I think that, you know, maybe at some point that changes, there, there's a little bit more of a breakup there and, and other people have opportunities. Uh, but ultimately that's why I chose not to do it. And it ended up working out right now. I think that there's this huge white space that's created where like, if you are the, the, the thing I always talk to people about creating content on the internet, I get asked all the time. Uh, about, hey man, how do you do this? Should I do this? Can I talk about this? Can I write a newsletter? Should I be tweeting? Should I be making YouTube videos? Should I podcast, et cetera? My advice always is just don't do it, right? Like it's just, it, it's not, if you're not willing to do it forever and you're not willing to, to work, uh, it's not worth the time. And uh, I joke all the time that I worked at JP Morgan before, which I, I was obviously not naive to the fact that it was a good job and I was in a, a fortunate position. And you're working ridiculous hours, but I certainly work more now than I did then, right? Just because of the nature of the business, sports is nonstop and so forth. Um, but, I, but I do think that if you're able to turn something that you're passionate about into uh, a career, I think that bleeds through to everyone else, right? They, they just feel it. They recognize it. And, and I think that can be pretty powerful when you're trying to build an audience or a community um, or a following. So yeah, I think there's a huge opportunity there too for the right people. But outside of that, I think sports entrepreneurship is hard in general because the, the products don't always, like they seem like great ideas because you're passionate about them. And you're like, this is so cool. I would love this as a sports fan. But a lot of people don't think about it from, hey, how do we actually make money? Who's going to use this? Does the league care about this? There's a million different things that go into it. So I don't know. It's a great question. I just think that there's no right answer. There's a million different answers, really. Totally. Let's say, you know, NBA players or, you know, people li listen to your podcast and they say, oh, Joe, you know, or read your Twitter and say, oh, Joe's really smart. I, I want to work with him. Why do NBA players go to the same agents? Like what monopoly do the top agents have that, you know, someone like you or, or someone who's really smart, who a player might listen to the podcast, or read the content, say, hey, I, I really trust this guy. I built a relationship with him, but you know, his content like what do new people don't have? Yeah, I think that agents provide a lot of value outside of what people just see, right? They certainly have the relationship with the teams. They have relationships with other agents or managers. They have relationships with brands. They can get you things that you may not be able to get elsewhere. And I think a lot of it too is just what's been done historically, right? So if you go in the NBA and you say, you know, someone approaches you and they, who, who do you want to sign with as an agent? You want to sign with whoever's rep representing LeBron James. You want to sign with whoever's representing Giannis. You want to sign with whoever's representing Jason Tatum, right? Like you want to go to whoever the best in the business is. And I think that compounds over time for sure. But ultimately we've seen some of that start to take shape over the last few years where athletes do feel more empowered to do some of this stuff on their own. I, I, I think the hard part is one of my friends is Andrew Brandt. He was a vice president of the Packers. He did most of the cap work for Brett Favre's years and Aaron Rodgers' early uh, career there. And he always talked about how there was a few athletes that wanted to negotiate these deals themselves. And they pop up all the time, right? Lamar Jackson is negotiating his deal himself right now. And, you know, agents charge anywhere between one to 3%. So on a big deal, that could be millions of dollars that you're saving. It's certainly uh, important. But there's also something to be said for the fact that these meetings and, and this stuff can get kind of nasty at times, right? Like the, the team is basically saying, you're not worth this. We think you're worth this. 
And when you're talking to your quarterback, that can create kind of a, a weird rift between you and the team. And I think that's kind of what we're seeing playing out in, in Baltimore too. So I think that, you know, agents provide a lot of value and the best ones have been able to build relationships and get clients and then use that to build more relationships and get more clients. And it becomes this compounding effect where they just, they keep dominating, right? Most of the agents now are, are outside of, you know, Rich Paul and a few of the other guys that are younger. They're all in their 50s, 60s, and even 70s. So they've been doing yeah. this for a long time. And it's no surprise why they keep getting clients. I, I've been fascinated by a company like Overtime, right? Yeah. That built this sort of content, you know, monster and then expanded into leagues. And so I'm curious, you're building a content monster. Let's say in the next few years, you continue to, you 10 exit, you know, you become, you know, the, the, one of the biggest sports media personalities in, in the world. W what's your ceiling or, or where, where could you go from there? Just from a pure business perspective, like what potential expansion opportunities could be interesting. Yeah, I think there's a lot, right? I think at the end of the day, whoever has the attention to your point is winning, right? And you can yeah. do a variety of different things. You could keep doing exactly what you're doing, right? You could raise money, go build something bigger. You could start a league. You could start an asset management firm. You could start a fund. You could. You, there's a million different things that you can do. I think the thing that I've always been focused on is keeping the main thing, the main thing, which is just my interest in, in, in sports business in general and, and the, the stories behind it and continuing to grow the audience, right? Because I think at the end of the day, that's what's going to be the most valuable. And it opens up doors for so many other things that you want to do down the road, right? I, I can't sit here and tell you, hey, look, this is what I see happening a decade from now. But I know that if the audience continues to grow in the way that it does, whether it's, you know, the newsletter, Twitter, podcast, YouTube, etc., there will just be so many more opportunities. And I think that flexibility is really valuable. Yeah. For people who share your passion for the game and are willing to, to put in the work, even if it doesn't, if nothing comes from it, I'm curious for your advice on one, do you think there's like white space out there or, or opportunities that are kind of more low hanging fruit or easier for people to achieve than others, like different sub segments within kind of analysis and two, which channels might you advise they focus on? And maybe you just have to do everything. But what do you think is the highest bank? No, I, I actually, I actually uh, would say the opposite. I think that when, first, let's start with subject. You should pick the thing that you're most passionate about that has the biggest market that you can be a subject matter expert at, right? So if you say, hey, look, I like the NFL. I'm going to talk about the NFL. It's probably not that interesting, right? There's a million people talking about the NFL. Are you really going to be bigger than... Pat McAfee? Are you going to be bigger than ESPN? Are you going to be bigger than you know NFL Live, all these other shows? Maybe, right? Maybe you're just that good. But to increase your rate of success or the chances that you have, let's find something a little bit more unique that you can talk about. Is it, I love looking at college football players and drafting them to the NFL, right? I'm just really good at scouting. I, I love scouting. That's a better example because the market becomes smaller. You're now authoritative in that space. You're a subject matter expert. It's big enough still where it's still the NFL, but it's a smaller little degree. So I think thinking about it in that context, and that can apply to any sport, any topic, and really outside of sports too. But then when it comes to getting started, I think the most important thing is to uh, actually focus on one thing and one thing only to start. When I say that, I was doing the newsletter and Twitter, but those are kind of the same thing, right? I was writing the newsletter and I was tweeting to get people to the newsletter. I think the problem that most people do, and, and I've been a victim of this to some degree, is trying to do everything, right? Trying to write a newsletter, trying to tweet 10 times a day, trying to record a podcast or two podcasts or three podcasts a week, trying to rec re 
release YouTube videos, trying to do shorts, trying to do Instagram posts, right? LinkedIn posts. There's a million different things. You'll kill yourself if you're trying to keep thinking about it. And I think the thing that people have to remind themselves of is the people that are doing that. And I think this is why people do it. They see other people doing it and they say, look, if Pat McAfee is doing this, if he's putting it everywhere, I need to be doing the same thing. Why not? I'm creating the content anyways. These people have teams. They're spending forty, fifty, sixty thousand dollars a month on content teams to produce this level of content. And I'm not talking about Pat specifically, but creators in general, whether it's sports, business, finance, whatever it is. A lot of these people have teams. I've seen it firsthand. And I think that it's a losing game if you try to do that by yourself. So start with one, build up from there. As you get bigger and bigger, you can add it in. And my, my other piece of advice is always just you want to focus on quality first because you don't know, right? When I look back at a lot of my stuff, I'm like, damn, that was freaking horrible. That was no good. That Why did I write that? Why did I tweet that? Why did I say that, et cetera? And over time, right, you get feedback. People tell you, hey, that was good, likes, retweets, whatever. It's all a feedback mechanism to tell you what is good and what you should focus on. And you were fine and you were fine and you were fine. You keep doing that six months, a year later, then you can start focusing on the quantity and you get better and better and the audience grows. And then eventually you'll get to the point where you can do both, right? You're just so good at it where you're able to do more reps and more reps, but it's still high quality. So I think it's a combination of those few things of just focusing on one thing first, finding what you're the best in the world at, and then getting reps in as, as quickly as possible before you start focusing on quality. I'm fascinated by the, the Stephen A. Smith phenomenon. Yeah. of just how compelling first of all, i don't know if this guy's worth 5 million or 50 million or or more but that, that this guy's a, a media sensation just a absolute animal and what I'm, I'm curious for my discord idea are there other stephen a smiths out there who are just waiting to be discovered or like are the best commentators the ones that we hear reggie miller or are there world-class commentators is, is that an opportunity in terms of resurfacing them? A hundred percent. I mean, Pat McAfee is an incredible example. The whole thing with ESPN is that, so Stephen A is the, I think he's the highest paid personality on cable television for sports. He makes $12 million a year at ESPN. He works incredibly, incredibly hard. He's on TV every morning. He has multiple shows. He has his own podcast. He hosts games at night. He works very, very, very hard. As do most of the people that work at ESPN and other places like that. So it, it, it's just different. But the reason I say Pat is because Pat literally built one of the world's biggest sports shows from you know the studio in Indianapolis by leveraging global open platforms versus the traditional system, which is go be a sideline reporter, be a journalist, then maybe we'll put you on TV a couple times. Then by the time you're 35, 40, or 45 years old, then you'll be on TV. Maybe you'll make a million bucks, right? Pat skipped that entire line by being incredible by being a great personality and just saying, I'm going to do this on YouTube. I'm going to do this on my podcast. And I think the most obvious way to explain it is that if you're able to get 50,000 or 100,000 people watching anything at a time, you're going to be able to make money on it. There, there's going to be plenty of ways to be able to make money. I think what we're seeing is that opportunity is happening in real time, whether it's Mr. Beast, whether it's Pat McAfee, whether it's someone else, the ability that the internet has provided for people to create content. Like TikTok gets a lot of shit, but TikTok, you can literally just record something on your phone and post it and it can go viral. Like it's never been easier to create some of this stuff online. And I think those guys are the perfect example. And it wouldn't surprise me. I mean, it already is true. Pat signed a $40 million a year deal with FanDuel. Like he's making more money than Stephen A. Smith, right? Like yeah. it's already happening. Incredible. But I, I, my guess is that it probably only gets bigger over the next few years too. And it'd be fascinating to, to imagine, I guess, keep continuing on that idea. Would there be like a Twitch for sports where you watch people watch the game? Yeah, I, I think it's already happening 
to some degree. You know, they have Peyton and Eli Manning have done the Monday Night Manning cast and they've done some other stuff on YouTube and stuff like that too. So I think that's becoming bigger. I'm interested to see where that goes actually because I personally don't love it, right? I'm like, you know, if I'm going to watch the game, I'm going to watch it. If you're watching a Monday Night Football game and it's cool to hear them a little bit, but if you actually care about the game, you don't really want to watch that. I definitely think there's a market for it because if you look at sports in general, the trend that we've seen over the last few years and, and certainly over the last decade is younger fans don't care as much about teams. They care about players and individuals. They want to be friends with Odell Beckham. They don't care about what team he's on, right? They, they'll follow him wherever. Um, and, and the data proves that it, for, for sure. So I think that anytime you can mix some personality into the stuff and let make it less team-oriented, I think is good. And my guess is that the league's realize that already and and are building out a lot of stuff to make that better, which is what we've seen in the NFL. And the NHL is actually doing a pretty good job of it too, but there's some other leagues that are working on stuff similar to that. I I was fascinated by your episode with Jay Williams, the commentator, one, because he is a multi-hyphenate, you know, he's getting into, you know, other kinds of businesses, you know, working with players, either representing them or doing the production work for them. I I find that interesting, but then also, you know, take people like him, Richard Jefferson, JJ Redick, they're kind of like this new guard of analysts that is kind of, you know, working their way up. It's cool to see. Yeah, they do a great job. Like that's the whole thing, right? If you're an athlete that is really good on the media side, the opportunities are endless, right? Because I always laugh to some degree when media personalities complain about not getting opportunities and they're athletes. I'm like, guys, athletes get pushed to the front of the line when it comes to media opportunities after sports. If you can talk about the game, if you're funny, if you're good on TV, like you're going to get an opportunity somewhere because you played the game. People know who you are, et cetera. But JJ is like one of those people who would be good at it even if he didn't play. He's just, he's very good at it. Jay and Richard Jefferson too, like they're just very good at it. So I think that people are starting to recognize that. But I also think that what JJ is doing is smart because he's basically leveraging ESPN to build his own thing. Right. He, yeah. he has his own podcast or media company now. They're doing a bunch of different things. They have newsletters, they have video, they have podcasts and so forth. And basically, he's just running a free ad every time he goes on ESPN. He's on TV. They do social stuff. His clips go viral. And then he pushes everyone back to his business. So I think what he's doing is incredibly smart because it's not a full time job for him. He doesn't have to show up there every single day. He has, you know, certain things that he does. And then he spends the rest of the time actually building his own platform, which again, he owns if not all of it, a a significant portion of it and and could realize much more financial upside from. Yeah. A few years ago, Spencer Dinwiddie tried to do this kind of experiment with the salary, I guess some portion of it. Fractionalize his contract? Yes. (laughs) I'm curious, you know, if something like that will exist that allows fans to invest directly in players. You know, I know in baseball, there's this kind of, you know, minor league players can get ISAs. And so will something like that exist or even like a fan, like a, in fantasy basketball, you could imagine almost like a stock market. Hey, I want to invest in you know Damian Lillard, and his stock will rise and fall relative to kind of his performance. Or it's a synthetic asset in the same way that a stock of a company is synthetic asset loosely based on the company. So I'm curious if either of those dynamics you think could possibly exist. So there's actually a company called Mojo, Mark Laurie, who is Jet.com, Walmart, etc. He's a co-founder of it. I don't know what his involvement is day to day. One of his business partners runs it and it's a stock market for sports. You can go on there and you can buy you know, shares of an athlete and it goes up and down based on their performance. It's a two-sided market, it's liquid, et cetera. I haven't used it, 
but it's exactly what you've been talking about. Like literally, you know, I feel like this conversation has been going on for a decade now where people are like, we need a, we need to be able to bet on athletes or we need to participate in their upside. Or I know this guy's going to be a star. Like, how do I make money on this? They're trying it. Part of the reason why it hadn't been done in the past is because the regulations didn't allow for it. But with sports betting taking off now, this has gotten kind of looped in with that. And, and now there's an, another attempt at it. So we'll see. I think that there's probably some appetite for it. It's just a matter of, you know, the company can be successful and, and market its product correctly and get users and so forth. I think there's a huge opportunity there. The baseball stuff is is fascinating because, you know, look, it is what it is. It's some people are like, it should be illegal. It's predatory. It's not right. And at the same time, it's like these guys are signing deals. They're getting money that they wouldn't have elsewhere. So I think that the real answer is probably that major league baseball should just take better care of their minor leaguers <laughs> and provide them with, you know, livable wages and good opportunities. So they don't have to do that kind of stuff. But at the end of the day, look, I'm a fan of giving people options. And whether they want to take those options or not is ultimately up to them. But I don't like when options are limited and you're told, hey, you have to do this or you have to do that. Yeah. I'd rather have them kind of a plate full or a menu full of things and then they can pick and choose what's best for them and their family. Totally. If you were running the, the NBA and you could you know, do anything you wanted as, as, a, as Adam Silver, what might you do or propose? I don't know. That's a good question. I'd probably change the all-star game because that thing sucks. Yeah. <laughs> um, it was the lowest rated all-star game I think ever I saw yeah. earlier today, which is not good. I don't know the right answer to that either, though. The NFL is obviously having a problem with that, too, with the Pro Bowl. Now they're doing dodgeball like that was a disaster. And the NBA is having a similar issue where at least they're getting their stars to show up and kind of run on the court and do some things. But it's, you know, it's not competitive. It's I think one of them called it a glorified layup line, which is yeah. accurate. So I don't know. I think fixing that is probably a priority. I think the other issue, too, is a lot of the leagues deal with, which is just like, how do you get the games that fans want in front of them, wherever they are at all times? And we've seen this shift now where a lot of leagues are dipping their toes in the streaming side, but still trying to be loyal and, and connected to the cable side because that's ultimately where the money is right now or the distribution is. Like the NFL is a good example. The NFL just signed media rights that go for the next 10 years. They're making over $100 billion over the next 10 years doing it. And they signed one of the deals with Amazon. So for Thursday Night Football, Amazon Prime is the exclusive provider of the game. You're not able to watch it anywhere else. And what we saw after year one was the NFL signed a deal that they wouldn't have been able to get from a cable company. They got more money, but the ratings took a hit. The ratings, they lost about one to two million, I think it was, maybe even more viewers per game on average on Amazon. So streaming is still not there yet where you're going to get the same distribution that you'll get on us cable tv especially for a league like the nfl which is predominantly uh, domestically based here in the united states so again that'll change over the next decade most people think as cable continues to decline and, and hits its floor but i think a lot of leagues are debating that right now because when you look at the mls and mls signed a deal where they're only good, every single game is going to be on apple tv so the whole league is on apple tv now which is great if you're a fan of mls because you say Look, I, I can get one app. I pay one fee. I have everything I need there. I can watch every single game. I can Each team has its own category in the app. I can watch interviews. I can do everything. One app. Amazing. But if you don't watch the MLS and the MLS wants new fans, it's terrible because now you're not on cable TV. You're not introducing your audience to new people. You have to have an Apple TV subscription to go find it. So I thought that was an interesting move by a league that's trying to grow in the United States. But they're taking a risk and they're taking a bet and saying, look, this is where everything is headed. We're going to be the first league to do it. And it'll be interesting to see over the next few years if that pays off. Yeah, yeah totally. That'll be fascinating to... I don't watch. know how that became of what Adam Silver would do, but... <laughs> yeah, well, definitely definitely the all-star game. 
what one question is he could have new teams or expand more teams then there's a question of dilution and this kind yeah. of thing yeah the expansion is going to happen at some point the league if you look at what's happening today there's never been more talent in the nba than there is right now you know everyone complains about defense but scoring's at an all-time high because there's really good players in the nba the, the nba the level of talent in the nba right now is really good there's room to expand I think uh, Seattle and Las Vegas are probably the most likely markets for it to happen. When you look at expansion, you have to do a few things. You have to look at a market that's big enough, that has enough people there. Then you have to look at a market that, from a TV perspective, doesn't overlap other areas, right? So there's a few different things. There's maybe some out in kind of Kansas City area. There's certainly Las Vegas, there's Seattle, and maybe some other places too. But I think those two make the most sense. And ultimately, what you're worried about is that dilution right? The, the teams have to pay enough money and then they have to bring enough value that the money is worth it to get diluted down if you're another NBA owner. The, the expansion fee is probably going to be, you know, by the time they do it, four or five billion. So that money will obviously get divided up. If they do two teams, that's eight to $10 billion. That gets divided up amongst all the other owners. But then the idea is that you can increase media rights, you'll increase merchandise, you'll increase sponsorships because you're adding two assets, especially in markets like Seattle and Las Vegas. So I, I, I don't think that's a matter of if, I think it's a matter of when, and Adam Silver will probably get it done at some point. Yeah, I think and that's a good note to, to, to wrap on. My guest today has been Joe Pomp. Joe, you have the Joe Pomp podcast, which is fantastic. I highly recommend. And also the Huddle newsletter, uh, which I also highly recommend. And then of course, follow Joe on Twitter. Joe, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Of course, I had a great time, Eric. Thanks for having me.